0: Welcome to another episode of Neurotalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurot West. I'm Eda Yee, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. Today our guest is Olaf Sporns, professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Indiana University in Bloomington, and co-director of the Indiana University Network Science Institute. We'll be speaking with him about network theory, rich clubs in the brain, and jump-starting the connectomics movement. All this and more, coming up. We're here with Olaf Sporns, professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Indiana University in Bloomington and co-director of the Indiana University Network Science Institute. Um, Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Professor Sporns.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, so can you tell us where you grew up and maybe what some of your interests were as a kid? Did you know you like science?
1: Yeah, I always did like science. Uh, I was born in Germany and really wanted to do either astronomy or paleontology or biology or some combination thereof uh, since I was a little kid. So mm-hmm. I ended up studying biochemistry mm-hmm. in Tübingen in Germany, and then moved to the U.S. for my Ph.D.
0: So you're actually our second guest to have gone to Tübingen, and as you said, studying biochemistry, and you started in the WET lab, um, actually studying development. Were you already thinking about computational neuroscience at this time, or how did the shift come about?
1: Not so much computational neuroscience. That field didn't exist until the the 90s, really, and I Mm. started in the early 80s. But I was interested in mathematical biology, which was sort of a little subfield dealing with pattern formation and sort of modeling um, uh, kinetics of enzymatic reactions and biochemical systems, so I actually did some simulations of dynamical uh, systems equations uh, even back in the early 80s Mm -hmm. when I was an undergraduate, and it it sort of ran in parallel with my more empirical work at the bench, Mm -hmm. so there's always this parallel interest in math and biology.
0: And, And maybe modeling how biological systems work. Yeah. I noticed that uh, after your undergrad. So as you said, you came to the U.S. for grad school, but right before you started that, you actually spent some time in Shanghai. Is that right? I did. Yeah,
1: I was lucky to be an exchange student in the in the mid in the mid eighties uh, with a Max Planck Institute that had an outpost in Shanghai. So I actually ended up spending a summer there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It was Ch- China was very different then. now. Right. Oh, uh it was uh, yeah, really really a very different country back then. And, so I, I managed to spend a, a summer there and work in a lab there in, in Shanghai.
0: Mm, it was undergoing a lot of changes, I think that was like 1980s, 1986. There were, there were no high
2: rise
1: buildings yet, I had my own bicycle, <laughs> uh, and uh, there were almost no cars um, mm-hmm. in Shanghai, hard to believe.
0: Right. Um, So, as you said, you did your graduate school in the U.S., Uh, so you went to Rockefeller to study with uh, Gerald Edelman, who um, had already at that time uh, done some Nobel Prize winning work on antibodies, but made a late career switch um, into thinking about the mind and brain. Um, He wrote a series of books about consciousness and what he called his theory of neural Darwinism. So first, can you tell me how you got interested in working with him?
1: I think uh, the the main uh, reason why I connected with him was that he had a very broad interest in uh, computational uh, approaches to the brain he, back then uh, neural networks were sort of a novelty item
2: mm-hmm.
1: the people who got involved in that work early on and um, and he also was an empirical biologist and so that combination like, like I said in my in my early career uh, very early uh, mm. I, I did studies biology and math kind of ran in parallel and that attracted me to him and to his lab where i met some very interesting people started working with them mm. and within a few weeks and months of arriving at rockefeller i completely changed my plan i was going to become a biochemist mm. but I, I stopped and i and i went into uh, computational models of brain networks even back then in the 80s which was very much a fringe activity
0: mm. and do you miss the wet bench ever or you were happy to jump into the computation <laughs>
1: I, I missed I miss it a lot. I actually in, uh, later on I, I for a short time um, ran another wet lab when I was in San Diego, mm.
2: looking
1: at synaptic uh, connectivity in the rat brain, and uh, did some optical imaging there. Really, really liked the work, but in the end, it was a matter of um, something I had to give. I couldn't do both computational work and theoretical work and empirical work at the same level, and so when I moved here uh, in 2000, I gave up the wet lab. Mm -hmm. And I really miss it a lot
2: still.
0: (laughs) Maybe you'll come back to it one day. So let's talk a little bit about this idea that I mentioned, the neural Darwinism that Edelman was thinking about. Can you explain for us what this theory is? So maybe many in our audience know about Darwinism in the context of natural selection over evolution. But what did he mean by, you know, Darwinism for the brain?
1: Yes, uh, uh, Jerry was um, thought of selection as a fundamental principle that was underpinning all, bio, all of biology, not just evolution, but also the functioning of the brain.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so Neuro-Darwinism was a concept that he was just beginning to formulate when I became a graduate student. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that one of my first assignments as a graduate student first year was to read a draft of his book, Neuro-Darwinism, huh. and, and comment on it. it was kind of daunting. <laughs> bell laureate drops a manuscript on your desk of his own work and says can you tell me what you think Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and you know I think uh, Jerry later on was less um, enchanted with neural Darwinism he kind of moved away and in other directions mostly consciousness so the idea of selection underpinning brain function uh, was something that he himself did not pursue as vigorously later in his career as he did in the beginning
0: So the work that you ended up doing in his lab is, I think this is when you started to think about modeling overall brain architecture using, you know, network theory, which we'll get into a little bit. But why did his thinking about consciousness, why did you feel that it necessitated such, you know, big modeling techniques?
1: I don't know. Consciousness is something I like to stay away from, actually. Uh So let's not talk about that. But Okay. The, the sort of the integrative approach of modeling a, a whole nervous system and then even instantiating that in a in a robotic device and mm. a in motion, I thought this was very appealing to me, and it still is something that I feel I've, I've learned a lot from, that, that, that entire approach of sort of lo- looking at modeling as an integrative, uh, ec- almost experimental exercise where you where you put together ingredients, you, you let the system run, you see what happens, you vary parameters, you collect data from the system, et cetera. So um, I think he was one of the few people uh, initially who started this type of approach, one of the pioneers really in this area, and so um, I feel quite fortunate to have been part of his lab and gotten his PhD with him at that time. Mm
0: -hmm. So maybe let's talk a little bit about what this network theory means. Um, It's also kind of related or a subset of what's known as graph theory. Can you explain in the most basic way what is graph theory or network theory? And maybe give us an example of a a network or a graph that people may have seen uh, outside the context of the brain?
1: Right, so networks are sort of on everybody's mind these days, no Mm -hmm. pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, we are all part of social networks, we, we, um, we are very concerned with our social connections and, 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 and network science has sort of, sort of taken on uh, its own life in, across multiple disciplines from technological and social systems where it was strong even in the 70s and 80s into biological systems now where we are paying more and more attention to interactions among elements, whether they are genes, whether they are neurons or brain regions or even individuals. Um, so this this whole notion of, of, of networked systems, systems that have connections that are decomposable into elements and connections, is a very general approach to understanding complex systems of all kinds. Um, gra- graphs are nothing but collections of nodes and edges ultimately, elements and their relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think it very naturally maps onto the brain. The brain is uh, a network, fundamentally, a network of neurons, interconnected elements, neurons, um, individually are quite powerless, but when they get together and form a system, they are incredibly powerful and can give us um, cognitive capacities, behavior, and, se- and so forth. And I think network science is a very important approach now for understanding the principles that underlie um, the operation of of, of of the brain. Networks are very pervasive um, in our um, social world, in our technological world, and also in biology. And I think neuroscience one of the uh, disciplines that is now catching on to that.
0: So you mentioned these nodes and edges. What exactly does that mean?
1: It's really nothing but a mathematical term that says we have, we have elements which we call our nodes. So let's say they are neurons. Um, we, we treat them as dimensionless entities. We say they are they are points.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we have connections between them. So one neuron points to another um, with a connection, with a synaptic projection. And that's now our, our edge or our, our connection. Ultimately, a graph is nothing but a collection of those nodes and edges which are arranged in a particular type of shape, which we call topology, and that that now becomes a mathematical object. We can do all sorts of mathematical analyses, descriptive studies, but also uh, construct generative models, construct dynamic models on top. Um, so uh, n- networks become a very um, general, very powerful framework, I think, for understanding the brain because they're so versatile in the way we can use them
0: and i was looking up some of these uh, networks or graphs i mean it's it looks a lot like the kind of images that i see floating all over the internet these days people talking about like who meets who and you see like a bunch of dots and connecting lines i mean this is kind of the image i think of when i think of networks and
1: it, there's a powerful visualization here and, and sort of a, 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 you know it's really much more than than a visual tool mm. it's, it's an analytic tool a modeling tool Graph theory has a long history, goes back hundreds of years, um, has been applied very widely in uh, many different scientific disciplines. So really, we're not going out on a limb, I think, Mm -hmm. applying uh, graph theory and networks to the brain. It's been done very successfully in many other aspects of natural sciences, and uh, we're really just uh, leveraging some of the exciting work that people have done in other disciplines and learn from that in, uh, in our own discipline here.
0: And and you mentioned like you know using graph theory as a tool because of that history. What are some of the kinds of formal problems that we can address about the brain using this? So like, can you give an example of, of one question we might address?
1: Well, you know, a lot of different things have have been done already in in, in brain networks. I think one of the enduring um, insights is that has been that when we look at the human brain, for example. Mm-hmm. Looking at the connections that uh, different regions maintain with each other, Mm -hmm. uh, inequalities, if you wish, not every brain region is created equal. There are some that are more widely connected, more diversely connected. Um, Those are candidate regions for performing integrative functions that are more um, um, uh, widely engaging in cognitive operations in different domains. There's other regions which are more, um, you know that are connected less widely, um, less diversely, more within their own community um, and those regions are more specialized, they are, they are contributing to, few, to less diverse functions and are more locally engaged so this notion of hubs, of highly connected regions that are central to keeping the brain together, operating as an integrative unit um, that's become a, I think a major insight in our field and it's been replicated over and over again, people have been looking at uh, hubs in not only the human brain, but also in uh, animal species, mm-hmm. uh, interesting homologies there. So the notion of of uh, uh, linking functionality of a brain region to its connectivity pattern, that's been, uh, I think, very widely um, successful now in our field.
0: So you're saying there are certain areas that are very uh, rich in connection, so kind of like in a social co- uh, network, I have some friends that are just very, very social and connect other people. Is that the same for the brain, is what you're saying?
1: It's, 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 the, it's the richness, it's the number of connections, but it's also who you're connected to, which means that the um, sort of the recursiveness of um, uh, being, having even having a few connections but connected to very important other regions of the brain is, is very uh, is very indicative of functional importance. So there's sort of a lot of um, uh, a lot of insights have come from looking at connection patterns, comparing them across different parts of the brain, comparing them across individuals. And I think that's been uh, um, one of the success stories here.
0: Something you've written about is that some of these network models seem to be able to help us address questions about the efficiency of the brain.
1: Yeah, if we think of a, of a brain network, a structural brain network, for the moment as a communication network, as a, a network that describes how brain regions interact, how they exchange signals along axonal projections and so forth, then we can ask the question, um, how easy is it um, to pass information from one place to another and there are, are algorithms and, and measures coming from network theory that make predictions about efficiency and about um, the directness with which communication patterns can, can can take place. And we can apply these measures and theories to brain networks and have learned a little bit about how um, efficient or inefficient uh, brain communication can be. We can for instance use these measures to cl- uh, classify uh, people into different groupings uh, according to efficiency. We can look at how efficiency is impaired and brain di- disorders and so forth. So efficiency has communication efficiency has been a core concept in our field.
0: Mm-hmm. Is it a naive thing for me to think that you know the brain is you know obviously made in an optimal way? As you mentioned a little bit, you alluded to the fact that maybe the brain can be slightly inefficient in some ways.
1: I'm not sure whether I would actually agree with with, this, with the optimality. I mean mm-hmm. we are here, we're having this conversation, so our brains seem to be working okay. Yeah. Whether they are truly optimal in a <coughs> processing or a computational sense is actually an open question, I think. Um, um, our brains have to satisfy many different constraints. <coughs> On one side, they have to um, perform well computationally, but also they have to fit inside our skull. Mm-hmm. They have to be energetically man- uh, manageable. They can't use up an infinite amount of energy. So there's there's sort of multiple constraints at play.
0: The brain has to make uh, certain compromises in order to to do all of these different things.
1: Yeah, I think the brain is optimal in the sense that it is optimally trading off these different constraints against each other. So there's optimal performance computationally, Mm -hmm. optimal performance in terms of uh, conservation of wiring cost and energy. Mm -hmm. And it's possible to maybe create a computationally even more optimal brain, but you couldn't actually build it physically.
0: Mm, I see
1: wouldn't actually fit into the skull, it wouldn't be able to maintain itself. So in that sense, the brain is not perhaps optimal along one dimension, but it's optimal as a uh, in, sub, in terms of in, in embodying a trade-off between different criteria.
0: Mm-hmm. Got you. And another thing you'd mentioned here is this idea of uh, generative and descriptive models that can also be applied to these networks. I guess I wanted to ask kind of what that means. Uh, especially the term generative so um, you know a lot of science about the brain has been about doing experiments and finding this and that thing and writing it up Um, but what about you know is there an ability with these networks uh, or network theory to kind of go back to some kind of first principle maybe we can derive some laws about how the brain is organized uh, that might be in common with how other networks are organized
1: I, I, I agree with that last point. Um, descriptive studies are really, you know, you, 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 you use certain measures of connectivity, you apply them to a data set, and you make a statement about, you know, whether um, a measure is smaller or larger in a, in a given context. So that's one thing that's been done a lot now, and I think um, the field is moving on towards more generative uh, questions like, what type of why does the brain look the way it does? Is sort of what we're asking. What are the principles behind this organization? And here we have found, looking at comparative studies across species, that there is a remarkable uh, number of features that are apparently conserved across different species. For example, the existence of hub regions of highly connected parts of the brain that are somewhat. Uh, standing out from the from the background. Those have been found in C. elegans, they have been found in, the, in Drosophila, in the rodent brain,
2: mm-hmm.
1: on human primate, also in humans. So all brain networks seem to have some admixture of highly connected, diversely connected parts of the brain that are presumably important for integrative processes. Another feature is the so-called rich club, which is the fact that um, highly connected regions that are rich in connections are also connected to each other, more than expected by chance. That also seems to hold for virtually every nervous system people have looked at.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We feel that those um, common features that are shared across a species are probably the kinds of things that that might point towards, you know, generative principles. Like these are actually important features that all brains share and that they must possess in order to do their job.
0: Mm-hmm. So last year actually marked uh, 10 years since you published a very important paper in which you defined the so-called connectome, which has become a huge um, direction and an idea in the community. It's really dominated the last decade. And uh, this was kind of a plan slash manifesto of sorts in which you proposed that scientists gather a comprehensive map of the brain um, in almost the same way the human genome was done. Um, and you sort of laid out the scope and feasibility of a first draft of a human connectome. Can you explain for us, given all the work that you had been doing, you know, on network theory and, and many of the things we just talked about, uh, why did you uh, feel compelled to write this paper? Can you tell us kind of the, the process that led you to, to write this this uh, sort of a, basically an opinion piece at that time.
1: It was sort of a manifesto, you're right. Mm-hmm. My colleagues and I, we, we felt that um, to understand the brain and how it worked, we needed to know how, to, how it was connected. Mm-hmm. It's a very basic requirement for understanding a system and how it works. You need to know how it's, how it's built. Connectivity is, is clearly important for how the brain works. We have no data about the human brain, virtually none, than mm-hmm. uh, classical textbook illustrations. Um, we had we had no map for the connectome at the time, so we um, decided to um, sort of publish this this rallying cry, if you wish, and mm-hmm. this is an important um, part of what we needed to know about the brain. Interestingly enough, uh, for about two or three years, nothing happened um, mm-hmm. after we published this. we um, mm-hmm. did not have a lot of response to it. I teamed up with Patrick Hagman uh, a couple of years after we published this paper to actually do a study on mapping the human brain with diffusion imaging and tectography technology that he had developed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that paper in 2008 really kind of created an impulse to um, to really do this on a, on a larger scale and across the community. I think only then did actually um, this become a, uh, a, wi- a widely pursued activity. So it really took a couple of years after we published this to get any traction at all. There was, there was really a very very small response afterwards, directly afterwards, and mm-hmm. then it took off in 2008.
0: Why do you think it took publishing that data to really push? It? I mean, this is a big effort. for. I mean, now we are looking back at it at the end of this decade to be like, wow, you know, the NIH has this huge funding initiative and everything. But what was the kind of effort that it took, you
1: think? I think, I think by, by setting the example and actually showing what it looked like, mm some analyses and discovering some things such as hubs and modules and and um, a core structure and um, all the things that we discovered back then i think that really made it look feasible to people you know Mm. and 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 allow people to reproduce what we did which was um, really happening almost right away we had um, a great lot a lot of interest in and the methods employed in this paper and also the the, the data set itself was widely shared at that time mm-hmm. so people were able to um cumulatively build on this and i think that really um allowed this to become more widely known and also uh, what be, you know triggered the the nih effort um mm-hmm. and now connectomics is almost like middle of the road i mean uh, it's hard to believe for me because
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <and you're laughs> There was almost no. There was really no data and uh, of, of any kind. Now we are literally drowning in it. Yeah. There's so much of it that it's hard to get your arms around it. <laughs> and so people now talk about going beyond the connect home and so forth, which is all wonderful. Um, uh, but you know, I I, I I still come back to the to the old idea, perhaps somewhat quaint, that um, knowing what's connected to what in a connected system like the brain is really essential.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Cannot hope to ask any reasonable hypotheses unless you may, unless you do this exploratory work. I know that some people think connectomics is largely exploratory and it's not hypothesis driven and this may be true to which I say um, the only reason anybody can ask a, a good hypothesis is because a lot of exploration has gone before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the, the kinds of network maps that we and others are trying to build really are the foundation for asking better questions about brain function.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Targeted questions, and so I think that I don't buy this uh, antagonism between exploratory and hypothesis-driven research. I think they both they're both needed, and uh, can really complement each other.
0: In a way, it could be cyclical, I guess, in a sense. Uh, maybe going back to that original paper, the, the very first paper in which you define the connectome, um, some of the challenges. So as you say, you want to build a structural map of the brain, but the brain comes, you know, at many different levels, right? There's there's like individual cells, even subcellular level regulation, um, as well as like the large kind of large scale connections that you can get through um, these techniques that you mentioned, such as DTI diffusion tensor imaging. Um, and in that paper, it was interesting because it's not just you know let's do this, but you also try to really think about the feasibility of some of these and you say, well, let's rule out for now some of the more microscopic elements and focus on maybe some of the mesoscopic, you know, medium-sized elements and, and larger elements. I mean, what was the thought process behind that? And do you still think that microscopic elements are something that we have to, we'll, we'll either never address or is just something we will address in the future?
1: I think it will be addressed um, in the future and perhaps in the near future. Back mm-hmm. in 2005 or 2004, when we actually wrote this, um, there was um, there was no shot at getting at the cellular structure of the human brain by any methodology. Really, mm-hmm. I think this is changing. I think that um, we, we now have methodologies that are that are that are, you know didn't even exist back then.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, um, I think the the microscale connectome is much more feasible now than it was back then.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I'm I'm, I'm very uh, um, intrigued by the efforts that are going on now in model systems um, to build synaptic scale and, and cellular scale reconstructions of of neural networks that can be, that can actually be studied with network science methodology. I think we're going to see more and more of this in coming, in coming years, and I think very soon.
2: Human
1: mm-hmm. I mean, of course, we have the problem that we, <clears throat> unless we work from post tissue, we really need to do things non-invasively. And um, there's there's a great, there's great benefit here. I would like to, to really uh, stress this, um, studying people it, that, that are actually still walking around, and you can actually study their behavior and their cognitive capacities in parallel, is, is really a um, an, a very important uh, part of the equation here. Mm-hmm. Um, connectomes are variable. They are variable across individuals. And it's this variability, I think, is ultimately essential for understanding how mm-hmm. people differ in terms of their behavior and cognitive capacities. We're very interested in our lab now in looking at um, sort of signatures of individuality in in, in connectomes, individual capacities, what are the kinds of networks that make a person tick, Mm -hmm. that make a person um, behave and and perform certain cognitive operations in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, This is something that is going to be very difficult to study in animal. Uh, in animal models, uh, where variation is not really generally the target one wants to have the mouse or the rat or the Drosophila connectome, but not necessarily a thousand of them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but with people, we are interested in variability. And so these two um, lines of um, of inquiry, the non-invasive imaging with humans and the invasive technology with model organisms are very complementary, I think. asking somewhat different questions, ultimately going to tell both of them are going to tell us a lot about. Um, How the brain works but i think that they're both essential Mm
2: -hmm.
0: actually talking about that variability i noticed you had a paper where you were looking at different ages and actually found that you know when you tried to create a so-called synthetic brain i assume like a generative model um, predicting what the brain structure might look like there was clear differences in how different ages could fit these models
1: yeah we were we were we were were applying generative uh, modeling techniques to the lifespan using the generative model as a way of decomposing a person's brain into just two parameters sort of compressing the structure of that person's brain into two values of, of two parameters in a model
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we found that there were um, um age, age differences the mm-hmm. the early brain the younger brain uh, is much more dominated by what we what we call a spatial um, parameter, which is sort of the the cost of connections across distances, which dominates the structure of that brain. Later on in life, it looks like it is more the topology, the the, the performance of the brain, that that dictates how things are how things are wired up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so we found systematic differences across the lifespan in these parameters, which in which is quite intriguing to us. We are also interested in looking at um, generative models in the context of clinical conditions. Mm-hmm we look at people with a particular mental disorder, what are the, cha- the shifts in these parameters that we can observe? It sort of tells us something about the type of brain they have, mm-hmm. uh, we use the generative model as a way of indicating what type of brain it is.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Um, backing up to the connectome, uh, what do you think have been the biggest achievements looking back on this connectome uh, movement? Um, and what are some of the biggest challenges, particularly in contrast to you know the genome?
1: Well, I think that um, connectomics has has given us a, for the first time really, a, an initial understanding of how how brain networks are structured, how they're organized. It's a little bit like building a map of the planet. Mm-hmm. You no, know, the first, the, the very early maps were all crazy looking. When you look, <laughs> at it, they are totally distorted. And <laughs> the oceans are, and the continents, and so forth. And I think we're kind of at that stage still. Um, but nevertheless, we sort of have our bearings now about where the, uh, the major features are of the topography, what are the main regions that are connected, what are the building blocks of the brain in terms of connectivity. Uh, big, big um, impact, of course, where these so-called resting state networks, which are these components of coherently active brain regions at rest and during task uh, evoked activity. It's given us a whole new different way of of sort of mapping out different parts of the brain and seeing how they're connected, how they're related to each other. This, this, this did not exist. This knowledge did not exist 10 years ago.
2: Mm-hmm. I can't
1: stress this enough. I mean, we did not have such maps. We had nothing for the human brain. We had interpolations from non-human primates. We had nothing really material about connectivity in the human brain. And now this has really changed, and it's really opened up new ways of, of looking at... Um, uh, uh, how brain relates to behavior, about brain disorders, etc. Um, the challenges are that I think uh, our methodologies are just not quite up to the job of giving us high enough resolution so we can really see neural activity and neural connectivity at a resolution that's 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 appropriate. Um, non-invasive imaging is um, is a great tool. Don't get me wrong, but it mm-hmm. has a limited um, resolving power, and I think we're, we're we're, we're starting to see the boundaries of that. And so we need new technology here to really allow us to map brains either more comprehensively in, in model organisms, faster, quicker, with higher accuracy, or upping our resolution in non in invasive methodology so we can actually get down to the level of at least neuronal populations and maybe visualize layers and how they're interacting. And so it's really the methodology, the technology that's lacking to really take the approach to the next level. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And I mean, these are all really big projects. So on kind of a side sociological note, um, do you think that neuroscience might be moving towards something like the big collaborative projects that we see that goes on in physics? So like CERN and, you know, finding the Higgs boson. I mean, these are gigantic projects. And and I'm very curious because biology has always been... Um, or at least neuroscience has always been kind of an autonomous, yeah. you know, small lab type of endeavor.
1: Well, the answer to that is probably yes and no. I think I think there will be some um, there will be some greater movement towards consortia, towards larger projects that involve collaborations among many many um, ele- um, investigators and perhaps uh, institutions. But the problem is we don't know what the Higgs boson is for neuroscience. That's that's our problem. If, mm. we, if, if we had a goal, you know find the elementary particle that makes it all tick, then I think it would make sense to build a giant um, machine to actually find it. But um, our problem is that we do not have, um, we we are lacking the theoretical framework in neuroscience that allows us to ask the questions that are really relevant for understanding the brain. There's a lot of divergent opinion as to what matters and what doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I personally think that's my five cents or two cents is that connectivity is gonna be crucial.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: that we need to map the connections of the human brain and of animal brains in, in much greater detail um, but part of the reason why by piling our resources into a single brain CERN like effort makes no sense right now is because we don't know what the target of that would be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think getting more data and better data is, is a good for us plan but I think we are lacking the, um, the question to ask that that actually uh, is the equivalent of the Higgs boson we don't have that.
0: And and the hope is that maybe with the connect at least the beginnings of the connectome, we can generate theories that give us those questions. Or
1: I think so because um, we we are seeing convergence across very different measuring technologies across very different um, uh, domains of of scale and, and modality towards a single representation, which is the graph or the or the network. And I think there are principles there. We know this from network science. That we know a lot about um, graphs and networks from a theoretical perspective, things that happen and can't happen in, in these structures. If we can map our, our insights about brain networks onto the domains of network science, I think it will help us focus our investigation in directions that are more profitable in the future.
0: Mm. Well, it looks like a long way ahead, but an interesting one. Um, so, without giving it away, uh, could you give us a preview of your upcoming talk?
1: Well, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll try to cover um, different aspects of, of connectomics, especially a little survey of what we know from from uh, model organisms, because we know a lot now, and there's a lot of converging evidence um, that we can also use to build generative models now that are that are informing us about the t- the principles underneath. Um, the connectivity structure of brains that are in very different organisms. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the structure-function relationship. The connectome for me primarily is is an anatomical network, a network of physical projections and and anatomical pathways. But on top of that, there's this very dynamic functional connectivity domain, which is um, the changing interactions, dynamic interactions among brain regions, the information flow the communication models that we can construct. I think that's a very interesting part of, of network science and of brain networks. Mm-hmm. We're looking, we're using networks sort of to predict interactions, dynamic interactions between brain regions. And that's been of great interest to people who are, doing, who are doing functional neuroimaging, and it's increasingly important in studies of development and clinical disorders. So I'll say a little bit about that, and that, that that's going to be about it.
0: Okay. Well, we look forward to hearing your talk. Um, So we usually like to end the show with what we call our rapid-fire questions. So these are going to be short, and you can just answer with whatever comes to the top of your head. All right. Uh, So the first one we'd like to ask is, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, Olaf, as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself?
1: As a graduate student? Yes. Ah. Boy, I I think I would say to myself that um, now that I that I can look back, I realize that almost nothing I did back then I, I, I'm still doing now. So I think <laughs> in, in some ways science has completely changed. I suspect this is true of graduate students today, too. We always think that we're going to be doing the same thing in 10 years that we're doing today. This was definitely not true for me when I was a grad student. So fMRI didn't exist for instance at all when I was a graduate student so nothing prepared me for fMRI. Mm-hmm. So I
2: think,
1: uh, when I look back you know uh, keep your options open stay nimble and um, take opportunities uh, when you see them.
0: All right second one if you could go back into history and have dinner with any scientist uh, who would you want to meet?
1: Probably Charles Darwin I mm-hmm. brought this with you. I, I visited his house a few years ago and that was a very sort of almost emotional moment for me. <laughs> I've been reading his, his stuff obviously for since I was a kid and um, I, ha, I I even though he was not a mathematician by any stretch of the imagination he had a great integrative mind mm-hmm. um, and he I think hit upon something that is that we still haven't completely understood in, in our in our in, in science and in society
0: mm-hmm.
1: so he would be the one that I would li- most like to meet.
0: All right, we've talked a lot about networks and how generalizable they are across systems. Um, so outside the brain, can you give us an example of another fun network that you would study if you couldn't study the brain?
1: Well, there's a, there's a bunch of them. I mean, I, I, I recently joined Twitter, which was a really interesting a part, <laughs> deliberately part of a social network because I wanted to see how that sort of works. And I have some colleagues here in my university that are studying um, Twitter um, networks. and. What I always find is interesting is how big those networks actually are. Those, those guys work with networks that are millions of nodes. Wow. Uh, we work with hundreds of nodes, if at all, in the brain currently. Um, and uh, so I would, I would, I would be uh, interested in getting some of the uh, insights that they have in these very large networks and import them into our field.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll be sure to tweet this podcast <laughs> to you. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Lawrence Spersky, Professor of Biological Chemistry at the University of California in Los Angeles, David Geffen School of Medicine. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padolina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Luis Giam, Eddie Alberin, Andrew Gundren, Yet Nguyen, Jordan Sorokin, Sharon Liu, and myself, Ada Yi. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of NeuroTalk and our radio show Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience, by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N E U W R I T E West.org. You can also follow Neurite West on Twitter using our handle at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk, and I'm a Yee.